This episode is produced in collaboration with Trends in Ecology and Evolution. The journal is published by Cell Press and is a monthly review that contains polished, concise, and readable reviews and opinions in all areas of ecology and evolutionary science. Trends in Ecology and Evolution aims to keep scientists informed of new developments and ideas across the full range of ecology and evolutionary biology, from the pure to the applied and from the molecular to the global. Here's the show. In Greek mythology, Gaia was the personification of Earth and the mother of all life. Gaia's name became well-known in the scientific community in the 1970s when James Lovelock proposed the Gaia Hypothesis, the idea that the entire Earth is a self-regulating system that is, in a real sense, alive. By and large, the Gaia Hypothesis has been met with skepticism. Neo-Darwinists in particular have been reticent to accept that the conditions of Earth that make it favorable for life, like modest temperatures and reasonable levels of atmospheric oxygen, should be viewed as adaptations in the same way that teeth or eyes or sweat glands can for individual organisms. In a 2019 paper in Trends in Ecology and Evolution, Fort Doolittle highlighted two major hangups that biologists have with the Gaia hypothesis, using the words of Richard Dawkins. First, Dawkins claimed the universe would have to be chock full of dead planets that the Earth and a few other living planets had outcompeted. If the Earth was better adapted, there should be lots of evidence of its success in the struggle for existence and the failure of others. So far, we don't have that evidence. And second, if Earth was alive in the same way that army ants and petunias and brewer's yeast are alive, Successful planets like Earth would need some sort of reproduction to make copies for other planets. How could selection take place if the best adapted systems weren't contributing disproportionately to future generations? Honorably and refreshingly, Doolittle devotes most of his short paper to explaining why these older arguments, made by Dawkins, by Doolittle himself, and by many others, might be wrong. In particular, Doolittle says that because there's just one successful lineage that descended from a universal common ancestor, we just need the plausibility of a lot of historical losers here on Earth. Dawkins' second gripe, the lack of reproduction, also doesn't damn the Gaia hypothesis. Instead of reproducing, the complex multi-species group that comprise Gaia simply have to persist. Natural selection really doesn't require replication. Evolutionarily, the thing that sticks around longest wins. Consider Pando, the 100-acre, 13-million-pound quaking aspen grove in Utah that has persisted for tens of thousands of years. Pando isn't just a horde of trees. It's also all the other species and processes within it. Mycorrhizae, herbivorous insects, browsing elk, birds and small mammals, as well as fire, drought, and long-term changes in soil properties. In systems like Pando, where generations of biological lineages are interconnected and even integrated physically and physiologically, what difference does reproduction make evolutionarily? These systems aren't whole planets, but focusing on individual trees for the sake of matching theory with reality is unproductive too. How do we understand the biology of big and complex systems like Pando, but also coral reefs, microbial communities, and even human societies? Our guest today, Tim Linton, is the director of the Global Systems Institute and a professor of climate change and earth systems science at the University of Exeter. And his recent paper in Trends in Ecology and Evolution, or TREE, focuses on the survival of systems. The main premise of the paper is that persistence of life is possible through self-perpetuating feedback cycles, which involve both living and non-living parts. In other words, the Gaia hypothesis may yet hold water. In the paper, Tim and colleagues describe three types of feedback cycles that characterize persistent systems. They're good at acquiring and recycling resources, they profoundly alter their local environments, and they tend to enhance disturbances that feed back on themselves in positive ways. Because feedback cycles also tend to support internal diversification and specialization, they tend to persist even better. Coral reefs, for example, are fantastically good recyclers of materials and energy, and they're among the oldest and most biodiverse systems on the planet. So our survival of the systems is, is about thinking from the bottom up, if you like, where life, life inevitably has to change its, its non-living environment. It has to use it as a source of materials and a place to dump its waste products, if you like, but it can also affect disturbance factors like fires eventually and things like this. So in other words, I, I like to think of the system necessarily ties together the living and the non-living parts to a degree. And they're not, some non-living parts like 
the cycling of essential elements get more strongly influenced by life than some other non-living parts like the world's temperature, but that still is influenced by life. In the last episode of Big Biology, we talked with Dennis Walsh about the value of repositioning individual organisms at the center of evolutionary thinking, focusing on their agency to understand better the evolution of life. In this episode, we scale way out and talk with Tim about the evolution of much, much bigger multi-species systems, including Gaia itself. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. And this is Big Biology. We're just thrilled to have you on. We want to talk about this new paper of yours that just came out in Trends in Ecology and Evolution called Survival of the Systems. Marty and I have found this to be an incredibly stimulating thing to read and to talk about, and we're, we're really excited to kind of unpack, unpack what it contains and what we feel are some of the, you know, the consequences of the, the ideas. Um, let's just start. I want to read a line from your paper, which is about complex systems in nature. Uh, we argue that their irreducible higher-level properties may be subject to selection based purely on differential spread and persistence, with these measures of relative system performance providing an analog to conventional fitness. Maybe let's just unpack that. that that's almost a shocking thing to hear, you know, from a, a standard evolutionary perspective. So, so why the focus on persistence as opposed to something else? So the focus on persistence is partly born out of the feeling that it's very difficult to shoehorn whole ecosystems or whole human cultures into a, into a mental model of replicators or reproducing things. It's really hard to convince yourself that ecosystems as a whole replicate or, or reproduce themselves into the future. And I also think it's pretty hard to conceptualise kind of whole human cultures doing that as well. And what we really need to do is take a deep breath and a step back and think about, well, clearly evolution needs some ways of getting information to be faithfully transmitted into the future. And one way to do that is to make faithfully replicated copies of yourself, whatever yourself is. But if you if that isn't really happening at these system levels... It's equally valid that if you just keep persisting and maintaining your identity into the future, you're also carrying information faithfully through time into the future. So can you? I think our conversation, um, we're going to be able to take along a lot of listeners if we operationalize to an extent systems. Um, I mean, systems, let, let's talk about some of the, the terms, define some of the things, give the, the key pieces about systems, things like feedback loops, uh, ideas, emergent properties, and the irreducibility of structures and, and those kinds of things. So you want to talk about spiral galaxies or waves on oceans or, you know, just some of the routine examples of what, what kinds of complex systems we need to be thinking about. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, as you say, Marty, you mentioned feedbacks. I'm particularly interested in feedbacks as a key part of what I'm going to call the identity of systems and of what I also referred to as this thing of irreducible properties. So we'll come to that. Um, what I'm Okay, what I'm getting at with an irreducible property is the idea that a what we're going to call a system has some properties that aren't simply uh, the summation properties of their parts. They Those properties really are not that simple and they reside at this system level uh what am i talking about with systems well i here it was about what we all call ecosystems and what we might call social systems but you could i would also put gaia the sort of totality of life capital l on the planet uh, and its impacts on its non-living environment also as a candidate system um there are objectors to the system's language, which maybe we can come back to, as it's too too tyrannical for people like my friend Bruno Latour, the philosopher. Um, but really, it's us just fumbling around as scientists um, to to give a category, a collective category label, to yeah, to these complex persistent phenomena like ecosystems. Yeah, so so I was going to ask you to give an example of a you know a persistent structure that you have in mind. I particularly like the savanna example. So, what's a grassland with some trees in it um, and some grazing herbivores and fire? Um, 
that type of ecosystem is, why is recognised on different continents, even though it's actually usually made up of completely different species on different continents, but we'd call them all savannas. So savanna is, in my head, an ecosystem type, and I'm gonna and I try to make the case in the paper that it's not a bad example of a possible candidate where this survival of the systems evolution must have been going on because it looks like a case of convergent evolution of the same recognizable thing that we give the same label to made up of totally different species on different continents, but with the same essential feedbacks making a key part of its success and its identity. The vegetation, particularly the grasses and the fire regime that that is self perpetuating is the language I use or mathematically we talk about it as a positive feedback grass encourages fire encourages uh, grass encourages spread encourages the system uh, but also the relation the coupling between the grass the trees and the types of herbivores as a, as a second kind of disturbance factor unlike abiotic fire a biological disturbance factor and the crucial idea I'm getting at in all of this is you have these I, I use the language of self-perpetuating feedback cycles in the savanna that are crucial, I think, to the fact that grasslands have spread over the a third of the productive land surface in just the last few millions or tens of millions of years. But you can find a whole load of other examples where different ecosystems, for each of them, you can identify these strong internal feedbacks that 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 propel their spread and and then also support their persistence through time. Oh, there's so much to talk about here, and my brain is spinning about where where to go next. But let's let's ta- try to tackle that part of it. Stick with the f- this these feedback loops, and in particular the positive feedback loops that that you've been emphasizing. I mean, maybe I'm I'm wrong because I'm fairly ignorant in this space. But positive feedback loops often are are sort of risky in terms of stability. They don't usually lend themselves towards the persistence idea that underpins what you're talking about, but they are sort of maybe even required for dispersal and spread, which is part of what you're talking about. So can you package that for us? Sure, Marty. What I don't do as explicitly as perhaps I should in the paper is, and I I do it kind of implicitly, I try to take the reader on a journey from this idea of positive feedback, self-perpetuating feedbacks to to the idea of self-stabilizing and negative feedbacks. So let's go back and rewind to the self-perpetuating feedbacks. There where, if you like, there a system supporting its own flourishing and spread. It could, we could use another example like um, the closing of recycling loops within a microbial ecosystem or any other ecosystem for that matter. If you're in the recycling loop, it's good for all the participants and it boosts all of their productivity and it's clearly a positive feedback loop. Um, yes, positive feedbacks then, in this case, would amplify their own spread and th- until they're bounded by something. Um, that bounding might be that you're in a world that's populated with other types of system and you come into some competition or balance with them, of course. But equally, um, if we've got to think about what gives rise to persistence, then yes, we need to also think about how do self-stabilizing feedbacks come about that might help a particular ecosystem, for example, um, survive the provocations it's getting from the world? The ideas I'm bring, bring, bringing to the table there about how self-stabilizing outcomes come about, I've been appealing back to early work in the field of cybernetics, actually the work of a British cybernetician, Ross Ashby, back in the 1940s, it was, who first demonstrated a mechanism by which uh, any complex system that when it strays outside of the bounds of tolerability or habitability, actually in his case, randomly rewires its internal connections and keeps doing that until it finds a stable, stable stabilising configuration that maintains kind of habitable conditions. I... I think in reality, in nature, you don't have something as radical as a random rewiring of the whole system. But I called this idea sequential selection, where um, an evolving system would keep, if you like, innovating. uh, And maybe it was unstable several times. But as soon as it locks on a stable, self-stabilizing configuration, that by definition tends to persist. So what I what I'm trying to do here in a is is 
blend these these ideas together bring them bring them together but what the point i guess is real ecosystems clearly contain these strong self-perpetuating or re- positive feedbacks that are supporting their vitality and flourishing the positive feedbacks are, re- are reinforcing the growth in the primary production that drives everything but equally they there are there's, there's these valid selection mechanisms by which they can uh, can find or or acquire um self-stabilizing feedbacks with respect to other things like um temperature or some abiotic environmental variables i want to just unpack this idea of uh, sort of winners and losers in terms of, of persistence and you, know, you you just made a case for persistence of the winners and some of the characteristics of those winning systems i i think for me what what's hard to envision is the possible variants that might coalesce early on that are the losers right so you have other I mean, there must be some exploration of a space of possible systems, and maybe many of those are are inadequate or insufficient, and so they just uh, they're fleeting. They don't they don't persist, and and so I think one thing that's hard about this is that if we look out in nature, it feels like we mostly are seeing the winners, and so it's hard to envision the losers. That's right, and that was one of the reasons why I thought it would be insightful and fun in the paper to show that this thinking could apply to human cultural evolution just as it could could apply to ecosystems. Partly the advantage in that case is human cultural evolution is a lot more recent than much of much of uh, ecosystem evolution. Lots of rapid experimentation, right? Yeah, so talking actually at the Santa Fe Institute to Henry Wright, one of the fathers of that field, he was just walking me through his work on early experiments in what's called state formation and cultural evolution. Uh, he was particularly expert on some of the South Peruvian and South American cases. So he got me reading all his work on this and, and the field more generally. But it turns out that cultural evolution is full of these wonderful um, disent- archaeologically disentangled case studies of early experiments in in state or city-state formation that sort of don't they fall up they keep falling apart um or maybe something came along and did better than they did and replaced them eventually so in learning about early cultural evolution i found the archaeologists were already telling themselves pretty compelling narratives that fitted this this theoretical framework uh, that you literally see you see these failed experiments in early state formation where you can see that there's a tension between is the state going to be a persistent thing or is just being a forager going to stay the preferred thing and and having a few wild grains on the side um yeah basically in that space you've the the examples feel more real and they feel more evidenced because they're only whatever 6000 years ago or something so here's a, a thought experiment along those lines and it has to do with um trying to imagine are the cycles that we see today and that that came out of earth's prehistory are are those in some sense inevitable given the abiotic conditions on on earth or or do they depend on something about you know the chance evolution and coming together of various lineages And, and one way to articulate that is to say on other worlds, if there's life, do we expect the same kind of macrostructures to evolve by persistence on, on those worlds as we see on Earth? We had Nick Lane on a few months ago, and so Art is still enamored by uh, the conversation <laughs> yeah, with Nick. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, we're actually bidding, I, I don't know whether I should discuss this openly, but the Templeton Foundation, for example, has a call out at the moment, and we're bidding to it essentially to try and answer that question for what it's worth. Um in other words, it, how much contingency is there if you were to play the tape twice in Stephen Jay Gould's language? I believe the, that that's an attackable question now. It's certainly attackable in the computer where I do most of my work. We can set up sort of evolving biospheres as we've done in some of our work and, and do it thousands and thousands of times and get some idea of the expected distribution of outcomes to which we can compare the, the actual case of the Earth um that's an oblique answer to the question because i think it's a research agenda your question really but it's a great one and one one we could tackle 
now because we start to have we both have the we have different kinds of tools that are will help us answer it we have you know these um autonomous i think of them as autonomous evolutionary models that of the sort that i've worked with but we also have ever better insight from the actual case of actual earth history to disentangle contingencies or lack of them and basically i believe we're at the point where we can say from molecular phylogenetics and molecular clocks roughly when particular metabolisms arose, plus or minus how many hundred million years, and then we can play there. We can put that that new ecology into our into our Earth system models and make a prediction of whether well see if it makes a testable prediction that that the arrival of a new uh, complexity to the nitrogen cycle or carbon cycle or whatever new metabolisms would leave a geochemical signature in this ancient sediment i believe we've now got the enough data if you like as well as the tools to disentangle that and as we do um it'll help us come back orbit back round to your question of you know does is this following a something that looks somewhat deterministic because it's sort of governed by thermodynamics or something like that or is it very contingent on um on an evolutionary process and the difficulty or ease of of coming up with particular metabolisms i mean on that last point uh, it's obvious to me that something like oxygenic photosynthesis is spectacularly difficult to evolve and involve piecing together photosystems independently involved in different prokaryote lineages wiring them up in a cell that wasn't that was actually functional rather than a complete disaster for that cell. There are many planets on which, rather than it taking a billion years to evolve, it might never evolve, and maybe there are somewhere it could happen faster. But I think of it as a what I call what we call a critical transition, a really potentially spectacularly rare rare event, um, but one that's essential for us to be here. Tim, can you can you help me understand a little bit about the spatial and temporal extent of systems, and the particular thing that's in my head right now, it seems to be the case that the environment, we haven't really invoked the abiotic environment too much yet, but you know how much the systems can spread and their persistence and everything is strongly determined by the environment because that's how, what sets persistence. So how do you tend to think about the spatiotemporal scale and what are the sort of ramifications for you know the environment in determining maybe that's a strong word but what's the role of the environment in this in the scale well my perhaps my ultimate scientific motivation here is to see if we can get a workable um, Gaia hypothesis or a workable way of rationalizing how life in its totality on the whole planet is, seems to have created a uh, not just created a, a highly livable planet, but may, but seems to be stabilizing it to some degree. That's a that's an un, still an un, completely solved scientific problem. I mean, the empirical evidence that uh, is fairly strong that there are some remarkable properties to the totality of life on the planet, having shaped the environment to its own benefit, um, but. Theoretically, it's proved very hard to explain how that could have come about. So our survival of the systems is is about thinking from the bottom up, if you like, where life life inevitably has to change its its non living environment. It has to use it as a source of materials and a place to dump its waste products, if you like. But it can also affect disturbance factors like fires eventually and things like this. So in other words, I I like to think of the system necessarily ties together the living and the non-living parts to a degree. And then some non-living parts, like the cycling of essential elements, get more strongly influenced by life than some other non-living parts, like the world's temperature. But that still is influenced by life. Uh, And I'm trying to think conceptually, okay, let's build a theory. How do things... How does this life environment coupling spread out through space and time to have come to be ultimately a global thing? And this paper is about some of those intermediate steps in a way. But we see we see the life environment coupling manifesting quite strongly in things we then label ecosystems where 
they're not just the bios the biological living components right the fires are the essential part of the savannah ecosystem the matrix of calcium carbonated deposited by the previous corals are an essential part of the coral reef and regulating its height with respect to sea level in the amazon rainforest i mean the soil uh, is now greatly depleted of its nutrients and the whole system is frantically spanning nutrients around in order to flourish, but it's also recycling water to the atmosphere, and that bit of the water cycle is part of the ecosystem in my conceptualization. It's an essential feedback that's helping self-support the Amazon. So basically, I'm like the Odin brothers in the history of ecology. I, I am basically, I'm seeing living and non-living parts all together in these feedback loops that make the particular identity of particular ecosystems in this case. Um, and I think that's all, that comes from the very bottom up and the fact that life is always has to be coupled to things that we think of as its non bits of its non-living environment, but coupled to varying degrees, depending on how important or not those bits, those things are. And, and water and nutrients are super important, so you end up with some really strong couplings. going to try to ask this question a different way and it'll probably blow up are there parts of the world that some systems should be that they aren't well because this is an evolutionary proposition um it is really interesting to think about for example how have grasslands and savannas gone from zero to hero how have they gone from 30 million years ago, we maybe just see the first significant evidence of grasses to now a third of the productive land surface is covered in grasslands stroke savannas. Something had to be displaced for that, right? There wasn't, it wasn't like empty space before. So it demands, in my view, an evolutionary explanation. Um, how did that happen? Um, and it naturally sits in my head in an evolutionary framework to think about how have grassland stroke savannas outspread or outpersisted or whatever you want to describe it as, whatever was there before? Well, in my argument, because they had particularly particularly potent um, self-perpetuating feedbacks, they're coupling to fire as a disturbance factor, which could literally take out potentially incumbent forest systems that might have been filling the space beforehand, for example. Equally, the herbivore vegetation coupling well it's also kind of anti-tree in a sense so if the incumbents were for, for were woodlands of various types you know one can definitely make the case that the the the, the feedbacks that are essential to the savannah were very effective at, at, at allowing the savannah to outspread or out persist in many places what was there before if indeed it was woodland or some other herbaceous system now to answer your question does that imply that now there are places where savannah should be, for example, that it isn't? Well, there's clear evidence that that there's multiple stable states of either wet tropical forest or savannah over quite significant areas of the tropics still today. So in principle, you could imagine a situation where savannah stroke grassland could spread further at the expense of tropical forests but hasn't yet conversely under you could perhaps play the argument the other way and say well in principle the tropical forest could spread in some of the region that currently has savannah but has enough rainfall to support them so it feels like there's a very clear evidence for that case in the tropics that there are two different systems ecosystems with names that are in a kind of evolutionary ecological tension and the balance is at one point now but that balance point could really could move either because of evolutionary innovation affecting the feedbacks or because of wider drivers like humans, you know, changing the CO2 level and uh, changing the climate and whatnot. This this idea of dispersal and spread has come up a number of times. And, and, and I think it's easy for me to imagine like grassland growing, right? And that, that being part of its persistence. So at the edges, there's some sort of new fire regime that's taking out forest and replacing it with, with grassland. You, you know, your, your idea about 
evolution by persistence almost sort of specifically excludes this idea of re- reproduction, right? It's evolution without reproduction. But but in a sense, like like spread and dispersal of systems is almost like a kind of reproduction by fission. So I think it's just a linguistic thing. I think I probably shouldn't overplay, or maybe I do overplay, the persistence base selection over the conventional replication reproduction base. I think it as you rightly identify, it, it's more of a continuum thing, really. We're just talking about different ways of the same information getting sort of spread spread into the future, if you like, or spread in this case into... Um, so whether you do that by making copies of yourself or by some other spread mechanism um, or persistent mechanism, at some level it probably could all be blurred together. And that's why I find it kind of restrictive and ironic that much of evolutionary thought got very hung up on if this thing doesn't replicate in the same way that we can clearly see an organism replicates, then it can't evolve. And that that can't be that basically can't be right. And in fact, philosophers and theorists already showed it's wrong. And it the, the, the various theoretical tools that get used, like a thing called the Price Equation, you can write that down for pure persistence-based selection. You can write it down for a mixture of the two. Because basically in real biology, you usually have overlapping generations anyway, right? So you have a mixture of you have a mixture of copies, uh, offspring, and things that are, that are just persisted at any given point in time. And as you're going through time, you're mixing the two up. They're always they both contribute. That's not to say that replication isn't a really um, and and conventional biological replication isn't a really powerful way of of um, uh, of underpinning natural selection. I mean, we can have a separate debate about whether you know, actually persistence-based section is necessarily cruder or less, some, could somehow be cruder or less effective. That's a separate issue. But I think, yeah, in truth, there's, there's just various ways in which you get the continuity of information and, the, and spread uh, through time and space. So I, I think it's, it's my bias. It's probably Art's bias based on the conversations we had in, in preparing to, to talk with you about some of these things. But we do want to move into the sort of why do we care at lower levels of organization. But I want to, I want to dwell on the dispersal issue a little bit because it, it may start to address that question. In particular, I think it was in a box in your paper you talked about system dispersal specifically, and you used the excellent example of microbial mats, right? So can you say something about biofilms and microbial mats? But but then also, why doesn't that happen at, at bigger levels? Or does it happen at bigger levels of organization, a bit with bigger entities, that is? Yeah, so what's, was really, what's been really cool in some of the microbiology, um, as you say, of late, Marty, is this recognition that you can get, well, they use the language of, community coalescence and so on but you can get pretty pretty faithful replication of whole um, microbial ecosystems if you like i mean they use the language of communities but really it's lots of quite metabolically functionally different things tied together in recycling loops etc i remember i had the pleasure in the late 90s of interacting with bill hamilton the famous evolutionary biologist and i remember having long discussions with bill about whether whether the peat bog ecosystem could be faithfully replicated by on a bird's foot or something. Imagine a bird lands in a bog and carries out on its feet, not just the peat, but the various bits and spores of spag, spag, the relevant sphagnum mosses or whatever, and transports it to a new location. That feels like a believable case where you would have an inadvertent whole, whole ecosystem seed, if you like, transported. Um, I so I think it, you're asking the right question and if you think into the cultural realm we make some cases in the paper that of course when particular cultures uh, go to new places like when the old world invaded the new world it took a whole suite of things like domesticated horses uh, and so on and so forth with it to the new world 
And ironically, um, those horses then got co-opted by incumbent uh, indigenous peoples in the Americas who used them quite effectively to fight back against the invaders. So you sort of saw the, you then saw the reconstruction of a relationship between horses and, and sort of warlike nomads in the form of the Comanche, replicating what had been seen thousands of years before on the Mongolian steppes and so on. Um, I may be drifting from the question here, but uh, what I'm getting at is there are, across ecology and across culture, yeah, there are different ways in which you can get towards maybe this idea of coherent replication of 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 all the various ingredients of a complex system, but it's not trivial to see how that works for, for say, a rainforest or a, a savanna, if you conceptualise the savanna as including various grasses and the trees and the ungulates or whatever, you know, mammal uh, herbivores, how do, you know, do they really all move together? Maybe we shouldn't get too hung up on this, though, because anyone who knows their evolutionary theory knows that heritability doesn't have to be perfect for evolution to still work. It has to have some, it has to be good enough so again, I think when we start digging a bit deeper, we f- realise it all, you know, helpfully kind of blurs together. And um, so for me, then I backpedal and I would say it's it's these system properties that are that are unique that you can't attribute to any single one of the parts that I'm super interested in. So like that relationship between the grass, the trees, the fire, the herbivores, and the feedbacks that that creates, you can't attribute the feedback properties they, they're not held just by the elephants or just by the grasses they belong to the totality of interactions well that's that question was motivated by some previous guests we've had on the show and a very popular topic right now the microbiome right the microbiome of animals and i don't remember that you know in terms of the gut microbiome or skin microbiome or on and on and on that you invoked that but if we're remember why i wanted to bring this up was to get us to the why do we want to think about this? If the gut microbiome is, in a sense, a system, then the transmission of that system, the dispersal of that system, I mean, not only are you, you know, you sort of some evidence for what you're talking about, the persistence of systems, but also there's clear ramifications of the effects of that microbiome on its host, right? And so it's the, the potential for the dispersal of these systems to influence the evolution of whole lineages, Right. Exactly. Yeah, no, I was I was toying with or was torn with whether to put the microbiome in in as an example and and maybe I was a little bit too influenced by raging arguments about the term holobiont uh, that were going <laughs> on. Um I thought, well I know that Ford Doolittle is having a big argument about that and I enjoyed interacting with Scott Gilbert and talking about that, but I, I realised it was like a massive argument going on. I thought, hmm. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I've got enough complex ideas in this one paper. I'll just, I'll, I think that this fits as well, but I'll sidestep. I'll, I'm inviting trouble already, but I'll, <laughs> despite my ambition, I'll limit, I'll limit the amount of uh, arguments I start. I don't know, but you're dead right. And um, since I published, I start talking to people about the paper. Of course, that example comes up and I, I hope other good exa- I hope other fun examples will will come up because that's why we kind of put these why someone like me is uh, likes to put and ideas like this out there is to, is to provoke um, new lines of thought and scientific inquiry. So so Marty's question is partly about the the consequences of the members of these persistent structures and i want to may, maybe generalize that a little bit and and just ask you know can you see any any general rules for the effect of these persistent structures on the evolutionary and ecological trajectories of the members of them right so th- this this would be a way of like sort of connecting your ideas back to what i mean this is going to i don't even want to say this like normal biologists that work on you know, sort of individual communities in sort of a more standard ecological or evolutionary context. How do your big structures, your persistent structures, affect the ecology and evolution of those members? The examples that start to come to my mind are around agriculture in the broadest sense. So not just in humans, but 
like uh, you have termite colonies that farm fungus, you have leafcutter ants that do the same, as well as human agricultural systems. I mean, I wouldn't be the first person to make the case that not only did we did some humans domesticate wheat, but the wheat sort of domesticated us because it tied us to a sedentary existence that kept working the fields and so on and so forth. And I'm, I may not be as well informed as I should be on the on the molecular genetics of this, but I'm pretty confident that in certainly in the social insect farming examples, it's been demonstrated that it then kind of affected the genetic evolutionary trajectory of all the participants, the farmers and the farmed, if you like. So in that sense, participating in these very persistent feedback structures certainly, I would say, changes the trajectory for all participants, the evolutionary trajectory. Um, of course, it you may then find you get uh, contingencies and opportunities that open up <laughs> and obviously in the case of human agriculture it was a it appears to have been a necessary condition for some much more advanced social structures so yeah I I think yeah to go back to your question about what can ecologists do with that well you're asking the right question they'll it's the system level cycles and feedbacks that are really influencing the outcomes for the participants and I I would firmly believe that, for example, if we row back to my favourite Savannah example, I, well, let's say I'd be very surprised if the configuration of Savannah ecosystems and that in and the supporting of fires and so on isn't isn't sort of pivotal in all these fascinating fire traits that you see across the different types of C four grasses that either reproduce in the meristem or reproduce by seeds when the fires are intense and and aren't and it aren't also critical to understanding something about you know elephant ecology uh can you you know to the counter question be would could you could you understand elephant ecology without some reference to understanding the savannah systems that they're an integral part of so 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 here's the uh, an evolutionary version of this question which is um, do you think being part of these larger structures promotes biological diversification of lineages we argue in the paper that there's you just a just a broad observation that that the more flourishing and persistent um, ecosystem configurations are often highly diverse. So when you look at coral reefs or tropical rainforests as examples, they're quite interesting. Both, are, I would say, the Amazon or your typical tropical coral reef are both flourishing in what I would call a nutrient desert. And they're only able to do that because they're fantastic at recycling the nutrients that they flourish on. I mean, the coral reefs are in very nutrient-poor shelf sea settings, and the Amazon is growing on a very ancient craton of highly weathered out rocks, and that it's only flourishing because it's spinning around the phosphorus, potassium, everything else it needs. I, I, I hear you, I guess, but, but I can sort of see two processes that could lead to that outcome. One is that it requires that diversity to coalesce somehow in order to get a stable system in, in an environment like that. Or, you know, those those systems arise and then promote diversification. And so, you know, here we are tens of millions of years later and we see all this this diversity. So so I don't think I've worked worked it out. In the paper we touch on the idea that that there's some kind of feedback between the self-perpetuating flourishing systems and diversification. So to make that concrete um, yeah, I mean, it's fair, it's broadly established that in in broad brush terms that more productive systems are more diverse systems on average. And obviously, when I'm talking about a positive nutrient recycling loop, I'm talking about something that promotes its own productivity. But then diversity is an excellent thing because you can then maintain functional redundancy in your feedback cycle, For example, what I, by which I mean you can have multiple species or even different microbial guilds or whatever that can perform particular functions in the essential feedback loops that everyone depends on for their flourishing, if that makes sense. And then that makes your system more persistent in the sense that were some catastrophe to happen that knocked out some of the diversity in some of the guilds, you've got a better chance to have the functional enough functional redundancy to still have the cycles 
that support flourishing carry on. So the sort of persistent selection for diversity, because those more diverse systems are going to be the very ones that that persist better, right? That's the hypothesis. I have to say, I wouldn't claim we've tested that. I believe that is testable, though. Um, now you say it back to me. And I, I think that that's, that's the art of science, isn't it? To, to, to take some of these ideas and, and try and cleanly test them. I, I want to talk some about the ramifications of these ideas for you know, the, the world uh, conservation priorities and these things going forward. Can you say a little bit first about how we should think about hu- highly human modified habitats and especially urbanization? Because there's a, there's a dissonance in my head with things that we're talking about with diversity, productivity relationships and natural systems, which, you know, like you said, that's not set in stone, but is a, a reasonable rule. And the fact that urban systems are the antithesis of diverse systems, and yet they're ridiculously productive. And a lot of what you're talking about in terms of the persistence of complex systems using human modified systems and cultural inheritance and, and these kinds of things. How are you thinking about those together? Part of what comes to mind is is maybe the maybe the diversity has changed realm, you know. It does appear a little bit monolithic, uh, our sort of agricultural systems for sure. But there are elements in the cultural world where there's a lot, the diversity lurks elsewhere. Although it is fair to say that there's a, as many of us probably share concerns about the kind of um, monolithic monoculturalization of the world. And I sort of end the paper by by just straying into this con- the contemporary situation. So one some points I try to make there is that you have these very persistent feedbacks between say banking and finance um political elites and keeping the masses who who vote in the political elites elites or vote them out happy in 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 the mo- in modern um neoliberal uh, <laughs> economic cultures and that seems to be quite persistent and has spread very successfully across the world. Uh, but it's trashing the planet, so it 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 appears to a spread success at the moment, um, whether you like it or not. But it doesn't look like it's about to be a persistent success unless we change our ways. So I feel what I'm trying to say is I feel that these what feel like what seem quite abstract theoretical considerations are pertinent to our current predicament in the Anthropocene. This persistence-based selection can help us explain the timescales of early cultural evolution, but then clearly very different stuff is going on now. We seem to have a such acceleration of cultural evolution in simple terms that it probably can't be... Ju- it's clearly got you know all sorts of meme replication-based selection going on in it as well. Um, we need to be able to experiment with other ways of functioning as a as societies that aren't trashing the whole planet and are supporting our social and ecological systems and cultural diversity uh that seems transparently obvious to some of us that <laughs> that unless we can support that experimentation now there's no way we're going to find a sustainable path out of the problems of this century it's hard not to come to the conclusion that we are currently on a juggernaut heading for a kind of cliff edge still with our foot on the accelerator so you know um, that's why I wanted to try and weave those threads back together just to provoke some cogitation because really I'm still in my head I'm still trying to I I still feel like I need to understand why is the the current uh, system cultural system this is so stunningly successful Um, I don't think it it's going to be persistent for obvious reasons but and how abrupt will the transition be to the next thing right that's a key question for all of us exactly so that's why i wanted to i wanted to say to people we ne- we i don't think many people think about all of that through an evolutionary lens you know we just we don't think about climate change or or the what do we call it, the ecological emergency in an evolutionary way, not in this system's evolutionary way. But if one dominant human social cultural system is actually driving all of that, 
then we probably are beholden to think about it in evolutionary terms, at least to try and work out or what could supersede that. <laughs> I think one of the things I found so stimulating about your paper is is just how facile it is for you to move between biological and cultural arguments, you know, and, and to sort of make these common uh, theoretical arguments about the structure of these systems. Uh I, I don't know. It's just it's just kind of amazing in the the grand scope of it all. I appreciate the flattery, Art. I wouldn't be the first, though, right? Because if I cite Durkheim and other thinkers from recent centuries, there is a tradition of that kind of jumping between the biological and the cultural thinking. But 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 I think you know, this may reflect more just my own biological upbringing and you know there's this almost almost sort of taboo about talking about you know cultural and human evolutionary things even though i think biologists have a lot a lot to say about that stuff so it's very stimulating to have it all kind of put together in one one context um i want to just ask about one sociopolitical thing in your paper that really really caught my attention and this is um you're, you're talking about the rise and fall of various uh political states in the Pueblo region of the Southwest. So, um, you know, different sort of experiments or different structures persisted for different amounts of time and then fell and were replaced by something else. And you can think of those as sort of sequential experiments and, you know, how to run a society and and all the ecological implications of that. And, and, and then you point out that there was sort of finally stability found about 1300 AD that was then subsequently disrupted by the arrival of the Spanish that swept everything away. Um, but you said, you said something that, that really resonated with what I feel is going on in the world right now, and that's about um, that when these earlier incarnations fell, they, there was a lot of violence, and there was abrupt end, and uh, abrupt decline in wealth inequality. And I wondered, if, I wondered about this wealth inequality issue, and, and is, is wealth inequality like a, a stabilizing force for persistence? And so when these structures fall, that gets swept away, and and that, I don't know, that some, somehow seems relevant to our world today, which has such vast wealth inequality. And like, and somehow does our current system depend on that inequality? Well, it, I think, it, uh, yes, it would be the short answer to the last question. But yeah, this, this is the part of the paper where Tim Kohler, my archaeologist colleague and friend, is, is the true expert who's been teaching me about that story. But And he's also been publishing this fascinating work on how you can measure the Gini coefficient of those ancient Pueblo societies by, in clever ways by looking at the distribution of sizes of dwellings, for example. So yeah, I, I would have to say, to me, it's, it is indeed obvious that the, the current um, kind of deregulated market form of capitalism that we're all um, in, enjoying it or otherwise, has also been clearly promoting an increased inequality. I think we're all aware of that, thanks to Thomas Piketty and others uh, hammering the point home. Um, it would, I'm afraid, appear from the Pueblo societies like there's at least one other clear case where that that connection held whether it's universal across all cases of uh, past civilization flourishing i don't have a definitive answer but maybe we get peter turchin on or something and we would get uh, we would get an opinion we'd get a view on that from the current database um i find it really yeah i mean i think it's fascinating to think both about that and about how information structures function in a currently flourishing human society because we use very hierarchical um, organizational structures and we actually limit the flow of information in the currently successful human realm but if you look to the social insect colony the leaf cutter ants you'd have to say they have a very heterarchical structure much much less hierarchy much more simple horizontal transformation transfer of information and they're a very persistent and successful operation if you like uh, together with their fungus farming activities so I feel like we've gone in in the human realm we've certainly got inequality but I mean we've also got very hierarchical power structure with and the people in power deliberately restricting and policing the flows of information um other very persistent and successful social insects, for what it's worth, are a little bit more of a level playing field, you could say, and certainly some much more horizontal information flow. I think we've always got that tension of types of information flow in the human societies, but I think we, all I'm saying is I think we have to 
think pretty holistically about as well as about inequality we we need to also think about power and information flows in understanding what's dominant and and what else might be dominant and effective so i refer back to the thought that we've got to do some experimentation to find a more sustainable way of flourishing um a good way for the experiments of flourishing in today's world to have any hope of progress is to be able to exchange information with each other horizontally. Like you've got communities all around the world trying out uh, new ways of trying to be more sustainable. We have the starting of our own currency or whatever, all sorts of things. Those are little experiments of innovation that in with today's technology, of course, can share information across the internet or whatever with each other. And you can imagine that information, that learning process becoming pooled, because evolution, after all, is a learning process in, some, in, in very formal terms. By having more of that horizontal flow and more sharing of that learning, uh, both mistakes and successes, I think you have the better chance to see um, new, new feedbacks, new ways of doing things emerge. So that's, that's sort of like the cultural meme version of of persistence by spread that we've been talking about in a biological context earlier. Yeah, beautiful. I think I think one useful way to, you know, view view one's own work and to talk about other people's work is to ask about the skeptics. So how much skepticism are you getting about these ideas? And, you know, if you could articulate the case of your skeptics, what what would you say? Well, um, I'm used to getting a lot of skepticism because uh, even back in the 1990s, when I was a lot younger, I took on the Gaia hypothesis and trying to make the case that, that there could be a principled, you know, explanation for a theory for for what looked like these, what evolutionary biologists, I think somewhat wrongly portrayed as a gigantic kind of global altruism or something that was totally unworkable. So the kind of scepticism I might be getting with the survival of the systems idea is really a mirror or a reflection of the same scepticism you'll get about the Gaia idea. It's very familiar scepticism. It's really around, this looks like you're making some appeal to what I'm going to label as altruism, and that's always going to be vulnerable to cheats and so on and so forth, which is why I deliberately set off in this paper to say, no, I'm going to try and build this argument from cases which are not obvious altruism. They're not obvious cases where some individual organism or is is paying a, a hefty price to do something that lots of others can benefit from. Instead, I said, look, let's build this argument up from things that are just the byproduct of well-selected other, you know, individual gene level, um, strongly selected things. They still, however, come back with the the uh, the same line of argument. They basically, it it is a sort of a cultural malaise within evolutionary thinking, in my view, that 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 a load of things get portrayed as kind of altruism, gigantic cooperation, hippie loving kind of stuff. Ergo, it can't possibly work. Go away. Don't be an idiot, basically. I don't. I think that's a little unfair in this case because I think I've been a bit more careful in how I've constructed the argument. But still, the more, the deeper thinkers, the deeper problems we get to um, are, they would be things like, well, look, Tim, um in normal biology we the thing the units of information uh the, the genes they're sort of we know we can give them a name we know what they are we might forget all to tell you about how they can't do anything unless they're built in a cell and so on and everything but basically information is trans is particulate and it can be transmitted and we know from fisher the modern synthesis and write that that particular nature of information is crucial to the modern synthesis and making evolution sort of work well in a in a theoretical sense because um, it stops the problem of um, yeah eliminating diluting and eliminating variation so on and so forth blah 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 Tim you're coming to me but you haven't been absolutely clear what are the parcels of information or where is or what is the information here 
um, that that your that is the foundation stone for the evolution. So I tried then to respond actually quite with a much more mathematical version of what I wrote the essay about, and I probably should try and publish that, but it didn't survive an earlier attempt to publish it. And so I opted for the essay option and keep working on the theory. But essentially, none of us have fully got it worked through, I think. But but the criticism would really be, be clear about where is the information, uh, units of information that are subject to selection and give give me a coherent sort of mathematical framework of how the selection is working. To which one possible answer is simply what some scholars have called um, the gen- genetical theory of multi-level selection, perhaps, which is, in other words, you can always you can always probably write things down in a way where you reference everything back to an assumed gene level of information stores, even when you're talking about much higher level selection processes. But my that that's a way to try and go. Um, but part of my point would be there's information at the level of cycles or feedbacks that isn't contained in the parts and is persistent and deserves recognition. So the other lines of the other so the criticism then becomes write it yes part in simple terms write it down mathematically which I'm trying to do, but also if you're not you know what's your fitness here and so I I hint at that in the paper that I think there's a sort of analogy to conventional fitness that we're operating with here you know differential spread or whatever you want or differential persistence but I guess the the underlying point remains all very well yeah write it down for me mathematically uh, I think is the is the fundamental one Um, and and it sounds like one of the really hard things here is to to find and write down mathematically where the information is contained in these larger structures is that well that's part of it but also um part of it that is a fundamental it's almost a philosophical problem because i i think for my personal philosophical view is it's not true that all the relevant and personal information here is in genes i think a lot of it is and that's useful but i think there's additional information at the cycle level that is persistent that matters but another part of the problem here is um our current mathematical framework um for thinking about evolution and selection uses things like this famous price equation for example the price equation hinges on being able to count things in usually thought of in terms of counting things through generations countable objects is its sort of currency its mathematical framework is a feedback loop in an ecosystem an easily identifiable and countable thing no it's not that it it's impossible to imagine counting it but it's not trivially obvious it's not obviously an object it's a phenomenon then we are rapidly sucked into a philosophical territory where a lot of the interesting stuff in biology is about moving from an object-oriented view of the world to a processual philosophy of biology and that's not my you know not my speciality but something i'm obviously open to and interested in but it it will demand a a, a different theoretical toolkit to a degree if your existing toolkit was built on countable objects so the good news if there is any is there's already a very good mathematical toolkit for thinking about feedback systems it started in the 40s and 50s with what we call cybernetics people like me know easily how to write down the what we call the gain of a feedback loop that dictates um, whether it's self-stabilizing or self-amplifying and how strongly so and how that depends on the functional relationships between the parts and I've been basically doing working away trying to glom these different mathematical approaches together into something but I don't think that's trivial that's my conclusion so far (laughs) (laughs) understatement of the conversation right (laughs) I well I welcome uh, help uh, from anyone who thinks there might be any kind of merit here I take comfort however in the thought that you know Darwin got so much right with a purely essay-based prince argument right Okay, Mendelian genetics and the modern synthesis come along some decades later, and but he nailed a lot purely from a sort of uh, yeah an essay based print argument. So I I I would like to think it's still legitimate to put out this kind of paper provocation in an essay form, 
uh, even if it doesn't have all the mathematical answers, because obviously Darwin didn't, and he would, you know, and he changed how we all think about the world. So, so that was part of the the coy um, choice of title as well, instead of uh, instead of survival of the fittest, survival of the systems. Yeah. Tim, this has been fantastic, and thank you for take, making the last question a really thoughtful answer to what do your skeptics say? That's not the best place for us to stop. And so we won't. The last, um, the last thing, what else would you like to say? What have we not brought up that you want to make sure that, that listeners leave with? I guess uh, what I'd love to see is that little contributions like this um, stimulate others to join in the fun. Because um, I feel like there's a lot of stuff that we need that we've got good reason to want to understand um, that has been somewhat sidelined or marginalized by a particular historical trajectory of our disciplines so i'm not saying everybody should come and study this far from it but i just feel like i part of the point of this paper was to put up ask some questions and have a have a shot at opening reopening up some questions that have largely just wouldn't be allowed to be asked or wouldn't be taken very seriously and to try to hint as this conversation has that these are both scientifically interesting questions and ones that might have some pertinence to our current predicament of sorting out um our relationship with other living things etc and and sustainability and so on and so if any anyone out there listening um agrees i think my hope would just be um come and join in the fun and I'd love to see some responses and and always happy to try and collaborate with people who are interested because frankly this is a minority sport at the moment um we we've talked about great big questions but they are not what most people are working on um I'm not saying I'm lonely I have some great friends you know who I've I've done this and other bits of work with but it always feels kind of crazy that we're in this kind of in a slightly uh well in a kind of a weird in a minority um and yet the world is telling us you know we've got to understand complex systems and how they evolve so um if if if, if one thing came about of this if it inspired a few more people to head in that direction that'd be cool well that's a much more pleasant place to end <laughs> <laughs> come join the that's, party that's good to hear yes join the party well, Tim, this has been super great. Yeah, thank you very much for doing it. Uh, we look forward to the, the next series of papers, mathematical and otherwise. Good luck to you that it's developed. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's been brilliant. Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology. To support the show, please consider making a monthly donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com bigbio. You can also make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org. And don't forget your homework. If you like what you heard, tell a friend about us, mention us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. As a nonprofit, we rely on your help to spread the word about us. And we really want to hear from you, too. Let us know what you liked about the episode. Let us know about other topics you'd like to hear. Let us know about other guests. And you can even write to us directly at art at bigbiology.org or marty at bigbiology.org. We also want to give a special shout-out to one of our most dedicated patrons. Thanks to Hans Gunnar Stein for your patronage. Please follow us on social media for the latest Big Biology news. We especially encourage you to join our listener group on Facebook, where you can discuss the episode with other fans, create memes, and interact with the Big Biology team. We have links to the group on our social platforms, or simply search for Big Biology Listener Group on Facebook. On the next episode, we talk to Jason Podrabski, a professor at Portland State University who studies how organisms survive in extreme environments. We focus on diapause, the ability to delay development in an annual killifish. These and other aquatic organisms have evolved amazing ways to cope with very dry conditions for very long periods of time. Everything's shut down, but man, if you don't start things up in exactly the right sequence and make sure that everything is um, in sync, you're, it would be very easy to exhaust all of your energy stores or to start up the wrong process first and damage you know, um, some other part of the cell. So I'm certain that there is a very set 
pathway out of dormancy that has to be regulated. Thanks to Jordan Greer, Ajinki Adahake, and Dana Baxter for managing our social media channels and helping produce the podcast. Thank you to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and thanks to Ruth Demry for producing the episode. Thanks also to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear. 